when Threadmetrics was acquired by Lexus Risk, the CEO asked me, said, so Reed, what do you do all day? Because he thought maybe every decision in the company went off over my desk. And I said, absolutely not. I have very few decisions actually ever come to me. But I said, I spend a third of my time with the sales and marketing team, customers. I spend a third of my time with the products team, engineering and products. I spend a third of my time with investors, Wall Street, those kinds of things. And I spend 100% of my time keeping the lions and tigers on the stool. And he goes, what does that mean? Welcome in to Studying Success. On this podcast, I interview entrepreneurs, investors, and CEOs who reveal their personal stories and advice for high school and college students on how to become successful in the business world. For our 20th episode, Studying Success is honored to be joined by someone as accomplished and successful as Reed Tausig. Tausig, in his epic career, has raised a total of $155 million and has returned to his investors $1.6 billion. Yes, that's billion with a B. From June 1997 to July of 2008, Tausig served as chairman, president, and CEO of Calidus Software, a sales compensation management software provider, which he led from its inception to IPO. Calidus was later acquired by SAP for $2.4 billion. After Calidus, Tausig went on to become the president and CEO of Threatmetrics, an online fraud mitigation company, which processes over 3 billion transactions per month and has over 6,000 customers. In 2018, Threatmetrics was acquired by LexisNexis Risk Solutions for $830 million. Reed is currently the CEO at an identity authentication company called Authentic ID. Here's the interview. Mr. Tausig, thank you so much for coming on Studying Success. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. How are you today? I'm doing great. Could you give us a little bit of an introduction? Tell us who you are, what your title is, and what you do? So I do several different things. I am the CEO of a company called Authentic ID. Basically what we do is we authenticate government issued documents for the IRS or if you walk into an AT&T store to buy a telephone, they want to see your driver's license and we authenticate that in fact is a valid driver's license to stop fraud. I'm also on the board of three other companies, one in Austin, in fact, a company called Clear Data, which is really a risk and compliance business focused on the healthcare industry. And then a fraud management botnet company here in San Francisco, the Bay Area called Arcos Labs, and then a kind of a raw startup or an early stage startup out of Sydney, Australia called Darwinium, founded by Alistair Faulkner, who worked with me for 10 years at Threadmetrics when I was the CEO of Threadmetrics. So right now I'm a busy guy all of the time. Besides laying off 50% of the workers, what have you been doing to get Authentic ID back on track? So a lot of the reasons that companies are not successful is that they really don't understand who the ideal customer profile is. What am I building? Who's going to buy it and why? And so they become very defocused. And that was true at Authentic ID where they're chasing deals in Asia. They're chasing deals in Europe, all over the world, really South America. And they're not equipped to manage that. The company's not large enough to be able to deal with those kinds of challenges. So we pared down the focus to what the core capabilities of the company are. And it's worked quite well, by the way. And new accounts are up over 200% year over year. Things are moving, really moving in the right direction. A lot of it has to do with focus and execution. People, when you look at ideas, I think that many people view idea, the idea as being the most important element of building a business. I would suggest to anybody listening to this that you aggressively borrow from other people's ideas. The two most successful companies that I ever built, both of them 
pre-product. I joined as CEO, but neither one of them was my idea. One was Calidus Software. That was uh, Andy Sweat came up with that idea. And the other one was Threadmetrics. Uh, Alistair Faulkner, who is the CEO of, and founder of Darwinium, and a guy by the name of David Jones came up with that idea. And so I think a lot of people look at the idea creation as being the real value, and it really isn't. In fact, you may realize this or not, Steve Jobs did not invent the graphical user interface for computers. He happened to see a demo at Xerox Park here in, in Palo Alto, where Xerox had actually created a graphical user interface for a computer. Steve Jobs saw that, went back to his office and said, here it is, this is what we need to do. But it was never his idea. And there are many examples of great companies that are built on the back of somebody else's idea. And in fact, I would argue that even at Calidus, Andy Sweat didn't really come up with the idea. In fact, Trilogy out of Boston, Texas had a product in the market. So ideas are just that. Execution is what's really important. You mentioned it was really important for Authentic ID to maintain a great focus on what they're principally providing. How does a company maintain their focus and not get sidetracked? It's a function of management and leadership to do that. It's very easy for sales organizations to become defocused because whatever deal is sitting in front of that sales guy at any given point in time becomes the most important thing in the world. But it may not have any relevance to the future of the company. It could be a one-off that requires a lot of engineering support that can't be replicated in terms of other customers doing the same thing. So really, it is important that as you build a business that you really understand who that, what's called the ICP, ideal customer profile, really is. Who is that person? Why do they need to buy your product? And to really stay focused on on that issue. And then as time goes on, you can add to your business. So you can grow a business in, in three or four ways, three ways, really. You can either add new products that your existing customers and new customers can buy, increase your portfolio, increase your share of wallet. You can go global, increase the territories that you're selling to, or go to Europe or go to a different vertical market from e-commerce to financial services, for example, or you can raise prices. Those are the three ways to do it. But really what you need to be able to do is to, particularly as it pertains to the first two, building a new product or selling that product to a new customer, a new clientele, you need to really understand, is that new clientele, is that new customer, can they really take advantage of what you're building and as a result of that, make you more successful? How would you define success? I think success is achieving what you do well and are happy about it. I know several people in Silicon Valley and elsewhere who are CEOs of companies. They came up through product management or engineering or some other function or sales even, but they're not really very good CEOs. They're very happy that they achieved that recognition, but CEOs are put on this high throne that they don't deserve, largely speaking. They're not good CEOs. And as a result of that, the company suffers. So I don't view that as being successful. What I do view being successful is persons a great product management idea person delivering products to that company, providing leadership along those lines, I would absolutely constitute as being successful. I think particularly in the United States, the whole rule of the CEO has been exalted to the point that it really doesn't make a lot of sense. They're largely overpaid and not really responsible necessarily. What a CEO does or should do is really ensure that there is a strategy at the company that your customers, your employees, and your investors all buy 
into. Hire an executive staff that can execute against that strategy and never run out of money. If you do those three things, you're probably going to be pretty successful. What do you think bad CEOs or not great CEOs do? First of all, they decide that every decision needs to go over their desk. They don't trust their executive staff. They end up in a situation where it's a wagon wheel kind of thing, where they become the center of all communications. Rather than having sales work something out with marketing, that CEO feels that they have to be involved, that they're the smartest person in the room. That does a number of bad things to a company. First of all, what it does is it forces the executive staff, every time they end up upward delegating the authority and responsibility for what is really their job to begin with. And it's a big issue in that regard. Secondly, nobody's the smartest guy in the room. They're just not. For example, I can't walk into an engineering team and tell them how to code a better product. I'm not financially as educated as my CFO is, for example. I can go on and on. My job is not to do those jobs. My job is to hire people that can do those jobs and provide them with the support, financial support, organizational support that they need in order to make the company successful. Based on your definition of success, would you say that you are successful? I have been, yeah. We started Calidus from the ground up and went through 9-11 and came out the other end as the strongest company in the industry. In that space, Threatmetrics, we invented the whole concept of digital IDs at Threatmetrics and built a business from zero to $130 million run rate, ended up getting sold to our bought, I should say, by Lexus Risk. I had 241 people at Threatmetrics when the company got bought, and we ended up writing checks to 67 of them for a million dollars or more. And in some cases, tens of millions of dollars. And if you look at the whole company, more than half the company ended up with a check of at least $500,000. It was a life-changing event for a lot of people in the company. And it created a standard in the industry that it still exists today. Remarkably, Metrics, it's been around for a long time now. We launched it in 2009, is still a very important player in the anti-fraud business. Yeah, I do think that I've been successful in that regard. And I've supported a lot of people in careers and they've supported me. To what would you attribute your success? I am good at hiring people that know what they're doing. I have a very deep-rooted philosophy in terms of how to build an executive staff and how to manage that executive staff, which doesn't work for everybody, by the way, but it works for me. And that is, I go out and try to find the smartest, most dedicated, ambitious people that I can find to run each portion of the business that absolutely want to win, that want to dominate in the space. What you end up with as a result of that is a kind of a very rowdy executive staff. When Threadmetrics was acquired by Lexus Risk, the CEO asked me, said, so Reed, what do you do all day? Because he thought maybe every decision in the company went off over my desk. And I said, absolutely not. I, very few decisions actually ever come to me. But I said, I spend a third of my time with the sales and marketing team, customers. I spend a third of my time with the products team, engineering and products. I spend a third of my time with investors, Wall Street, those kinds of things. And I spend 100% of my time keeping the lions and tigers on the store. And he goes, what does that mean? I said, you'll find out because what you have, if you go down the path of hiring people as I do, smart, dedicated, ambitious people, they're not going to have a shared set of values in all cases. And then it becomes my job to referee, if you will. But it works. We did that at Calidus, did it at Threatmetrics. I've done it over and over again. There's other people, however, companies that have been very successful. Chris Cabrera, for example, who's the founder and CEO of Exactly, has a completely different perspective of an executive staff than I do. And he very much looks for 
people that will have shared values, that will maintain a steady focus on what they're doing. And it works for him as well. There's more than one path to Rome, these kind of things. So Yeah. So you've had such an extraordinary career. Was there a particular role or company that you thought was a highlight? Metrics was certainly, it was a magic carpet ride for a lot of different reasons. It was a very exciting business or is a very exciting business. We created this concept of digital identities, anonymous digital identities. So it was really, I don't need to know your name to know who you are. It was really a risk-based system that operated on a global basis. The internet supports four and a half billion people every day. We knew something about two and a half billion of them. And so it was really very interesting. And it was a great group of people that came together at the company. It was really a lot of fun. But I've had other companies that I've worked for and worked with. Many of them have been really interesting things. I really started my career selling mainframe computers at Burroughs and check processing systems. And it was fun. It was really interesting. Burroughs was just a terrible company. But then I went, it was just a joke. Then I went to um, Data General for six years and really learned management. They had some great tutors in there that really taught me a lot. And it was fun. That was a great deal of fun. As I said earlier, one of the shortest paths to being successful is to aggressively borrow other people's good ideas and not take credit for that. I'm not taking credit for the fact that it was my idea. I'm glad to point out this. It was this person's idea. And by the way, it was a very good idea. And I'm going to use it because if you look at it, you run into people every day that say something to you that you look at it and you go, hey, that's really interesting. That's really insightful. That's really smart or whatever it is, use it. You mentioned briefly threat metrics, but could you give us kind of an overview of what threat metrics and Calidus did and how they exited and kind of how you built those companies? So Calidus was founded, as I said, by Andy Sweat as a company called Tally Up. And I never liked the Calidus name. My VP of marketing, Phil Ressler, came up with that name. I always hated it, but it wasn't a hill that I wanted to die on. But we did large scale sales commissions and we started off targeting the cell phone companies and telephone companies. And there were a lot of them back then. It wasn't just AT&T, Verizon and T-Mobile. There was a whole bunch of them. Our first customer in that was, interestingly enough, was an Australian telephone company. But then we ended up doing Sprint and AT&T and Verizon and Orange and Europe and all of the big telephone companies. And then after that, we went into the insurance business. Effectively, what we were looking for were companies that were spending at least $100 million, if not more, dollars a year in sales commissions. Allstate Insurance, which spends over $2 billion a year in sales commissions, became a customer of ours. And we went from vertical to vertical. And I replicated that over and over again. I think it's very important as you build a company company to select a target vertical market if it's appropriate. Some products are purely horizontal, but in case of Calidus and Metrics, at Calidus, we selected the telco space and became the dominant player in that space. And once you become the dominant player in a particular vertical, the industry analysts, the press, the industry in general kind of hands you this title of being a thought leader in the industry. And you can transfer that thought leadership to adjacent markets rather easily. So we built that company. We took it public. We were the first company out post Sarbanes-Oxley, which was unfortunate in many ways. But uh, we took it public in 2003. And it was a great outcome. There were a bunch of things that happened to us that really depressed the stock for a long time. But nevertheless, I elected to leave the company. I wanted to grow it in a certain way. The board didn't want to do that. And I said, okay, fine. This is your see later. Threat Metrics was a very different story in that the concept of device ID, what is this device that a person
person is accessing an online account with, it can we tell whether it's fraudulent? Threat metrics ended up building into device recognition, really became a complete leader in device recognition. We looked at over 700 attributes of a given transaction, 740 in fact. But the original founder, David Jones, what he wanted to do was to establish the company minimally in the market as a device ID company and sell it. From his perspective, if he could get $10 million for the company because he owned 20% of it, that would be great. And I looked at it and I said, they contacted me through a mutual friend. And I said, I don't do cupcakes. That's that's not worth it. If you want to build a real company, I'm interested because I like the idea, particularly from a viewpoint of a land and expand. It was an easy product to install. It provided immediate value to the customer and then you could add on to it. And Alistair Faulkner, who was the chief product officer there, and I really came up with this concept, ignited the company on two levels. And one was that it would be a contributory network. So every transaction that was executed across the network. And when I left the company, when I sold it, we were doing over 2 billion transactions a month. So lots of data across 6,000 companies. But every transaction would be stored anonymously, tokenized, if you will. But every company could take advantage of the metadata that was generated as a result of that transaction. Lloyd's Bank could look at it and say, this person who's accessing my bank, I know was rejected at J.P. Morgan Chase. Didn't know where he was rejected, but knew he was rejected at another facility. And we would score people with a capability that we called Smart ID, which said you're either a good person or you're not a good person and shouldn't be trusted. So that company, actually, I did not want to sell the company. It was one of those situations where no success shall go unpunished in that we raised very little money, $54 million of paid in capital went into the business. We were cash flow positive at the $50 million mark. And I think that, by the way, this is one of the problems in Silicon Valley is that people are spending their way into oblivion. We were very focused on being cash flow positive at the $50 million mark. And when we exited the company fourth quarter of 2017, which was the last quarter that it was independently owned, we did $33 million that quarter, $130 million run rate. We made $5 million doing it. I didn't want to sell it, but the venture guys behind me really did want to take the out. We had a lot of inbound interest in terms of acquiring the company from both private equity as well as strategics. And we ended up paying our Series A investor out of Australia. We paid 115% of his entire fund. So not 115% of the investment, 115% of their entire fund got paid and others 15 times paid in capital. So it was a big win for them. I personally felt that it was way too soon to sell the company. We were the dominant player in the industry. We were growing at 50% a year. We were profitable. There was no reason to sell the company. But anyway, it happened. As I said, a lot of people benefited from it, which is a good thing. Why do you think Calidus and Threat Metrics were particularly successful? Great people that were very dedicated to making it happen. People like Chris Cabrera, Bill Ressler, a lot of the people, by the way, Dan Welsh, who ran services. I've worked with Dan in six companies where he's run services for me. Great people that were very much focused on winning. Great communication across the staff, respect for our employees, a complete and total focus on our customers. One of the things that I do and have done in every company that I've run, first thing Monday morning, I call it the impending disaster meeting. Every customer is color 
color-coded, red, yellow, and green, every single one of them. And those that are red and yellow, we want to know why, who's assigned to get it fixed, and go get it fixed. And then we'll follow up on that to make sure that it's done. I was regional sales manager at Data General, went through branch manager, regional manager, area manager. And the area manager, a guy by the name of Don LeBeau, ex-IBM guy, really nice guy, very smart guy. But he had something he always said to me that really rings true, which is you get what you expect and inspect. And that's what the impending disaster meeting was all every Monday morning. And I do it now. I do it at Authentic ID. We did it at Threatmetrics. We did it at Calidus. What are your reflections on exit by IPO like Calidus? versus exit by acquisition like threat metrics? So the bar to exit through an IPO continues to go up and it's very difficult. Part of the reason is that the whole nature of the stock market has changed dramatically over the course of the last 20 years. 70% of the trades on the street now are either high-frequency traders or hedge funds. And they're not really value-based traders. They don't really care what your company does. It's programmatic. It looks for dislocation in the marketplace. And you end up with these very warped valuations on companies, both good and bad. A lot of companies, you've seen it happen now, the bubble busted in in terms of the high-tech companies, creating huge devaluations of them. Many of those were companies that were doing $50 million a year with $4.5 billion market caps. Just crazy stuff like that. Unrealistic things. So in order to be a public company today, you really need to be one of two things. You need to be a 200 $150 million plus company that's on a solid growth path of 25, 30, 40% a year that is profitable. Or you need to be a ridiculously profitable company. And then they'll be, it's called the rule of 40 that profits and growth have to equal at least 40. So if I'm 10% profitable, I need to be 30% growth to get there. It's hard to do. And you're living on a quarter to quarter basis. The street is very unforgiving. So I think in tech companies themselves, I don't think are particularly good public candidates because of the uncertainty of the market and of the business. If you look at consumer companies, Procter & Gamble and people like that, you have very predictable businesses that lend itself better to the public market than tech companies do who can have a great quarter followed up by a terrible quarter followed up by a great quarter. The street doesn't like that kind of volatility. I think today, and the venture guys, by the way, and PE guys really don't want you to go public either because they can't get out due to trading rules and things like that. So I think largely most of the tech world is looking at exits based on acquisition rather than IPO. There's also an issue, you get to a point in many cases where you just get simply too big to buy. And uh, Threadmetrics was sold for $830 million. Had we continued to build the company, I think we probably would have had to go public just because you get into this rarefied atmosphere of who can actually buy you. So you end up in a situation where you have to go public in those cases. At any rate, I think the pandemic pendulum has swung largely to the point where successful exits are based on acquisition and not IPOs. How do you view running a public company versus running a private company? So there are a lot of differences. First of all, the transparency of running a public company because you're reporting your numbers every quarter to the market, to the public. There's a lot of transparency. There's a lot of good things about it. One is that largely speaking, you don't have this conflict between investors and managers 
attachment that exists within the VC and private equity world. The private equity in the VC world, they'll tell you, look, we're here to help you build a great company. And they are until they're not because their primary responsibility is to build a great fund, to have a great outcome for themselves. And that trumps, it happened at Threadmetrics, where that great outcome trumps what might be best for the company. So there's always that level of friction. In a public company, that shouldn't exist, but as you don't have an investor sitting on top of you like that. But you do have the street and you do have responsibilities to your shareholders to be a good steward of that asset as well. So there's a lot of differences between running the public company and running a private company. I think it's a lot easier to run a private company. Being in the public market is a tough deal, unless you're really large. You mentioned with threat metrics, you raised $54 million in capital. How do you approach the question of whether or not to raise capital? And how do you ultimately answer that question? So I think that the right way to do it is to raise capital based on future benchmarks. In other words, my benchmark is I need to have 25 customers to make this company legitimate as a real player. How much capital is it going to take me to get to 25 customers? Once you achieve that, you can then go back to the market and say, okay, my next, next objective is to build a second product or my next objective is to move into two different verticals or go offshore, whatever it is. How much cash will that take? How much capital will, will that take. What's happened in the market with all of these unicorns is that people view their own success as raising money at some valuation. And I always looked at raising money as a failure. Why do I have to raise money if the company really was good? It could be self-sustaining all by itself organically. But I think there's been a shift in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, which says, I will base my success, I will judge my success and measure my success on how much money I can raise at some inflated valuation. And all that does really is it really punishes your common shareholders, which are your employees, by the way. And in most cases, the CEO themselves, which tends to be one of the larger, if not the largest common shareholder, you're punishing yourself doing it. It's just crazy. It's an ego thing is really what it comes down to. I think companies also, good decisions are always made in a state of scarcity where you have to measure and think about, should I do this? Is this the best use of capital? What's the risk? What's the reward on all of this? And um, if you have too much capital, what happens, what always happens is that people end up making bad decisions. They look at it from the viewpoint of, of course we can do this. We've got $100 million in the bank. Let's go do this. But they end up failing because they lose focus. Well, Mr. Tausig, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, you're welcome. Good luck to you. As always, thank you for listening and please make sure you follow Studying Success to get notified when new podcasts come out. Also, please leave a review and send the podcast to your friends and family to show them what you learned. It would greatly help the show. I'm Will Burkhart, and you've been listening to Studying Success.